So who can tell me why our series is called That You Might Believe? You may remember why we called it that, That You Might Believe? Yeah. Yeah, because it's why John wrote the book, right? John wrote the book. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, so that you might believe, okay? And you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and this is important, so that you might have life in his name, right? So it's not just so that we believe, like believing you know, is, is all that great, but belief leads to life in Jesus, right? So we want to believe um, so that we have life. And so today's chapter, we should keep in mind that goal because today's chapter is helping us to get there. It's helping us to get John's point to believe. Now we're going to start with a little video clip here. Because Marvel has these teasers at the end, right? The, the post-credit teaser. Um, do you know that you can actually go on YouTube and watch all of them in one sitting? It's like 30 minutes long of, of all, the, all the teasers, right? Not that I did it. I only made it through like 16 minutes before I found that one, okay? That was a good one. So, um, Now, I, why do I show that to you guys? So... How many of you guys in your like literature classes, things like that, you talk about symbolism? Okay, so symbolism. I I, I remember, I remember being your age and like um, learning about symbolism in books. We read probably something like uh, Of Mice and Men in ninth grade, or To Kill a Mockingbird, or something like that. Do you still read those books? Okay, and they talk about how certain things are are pointing towards other things, right? And I remember going home and being like, wait, mom, you mean the author did that on purpose? <laughs> like, I thought my English teacher was just making it up. Like, yeah, like, this really points to this. I'm like, yeah, great. You know, like, the author clearly was talking about something else here. But no, it actually is pointing towards something. It's getting you thinking about something. And that's what Marvel does here. It's, it's not so much symbolism as foreshadowing, but it's getting you to realize there's something more coming, right? And, and so as you go and you expect what's going to come, you have all sorts of expectations in the upcoming movies, right? So this one, he's got his fancy schmancy glove and it's got little places to put things, things in it. What's that? Looks like a glove to me. <laughs> And he loses all control of the class. Awesome. So why is that important when we read John? Well, it's important because 
John is writing to the Jewish community who has all of the Old Testament scriptures, right? And part of the Old Testament scriptures are prophecies, right? Prophecies talking about something that's coming later that's way better than right now. And a large part of those prophecies are pointing towards not just something, but someone. Someone who's going to come and bring about a new age and a new era where life is going to be really good. And there were all sorts of ideas, and they were kind of, if you think about it like this, it was kind of foggy, kind of foggy as to how this person was going to do this. And there were certain concepts that went with what life would be like when this person came, okay? And so then steps Jesus onto the scene, all right? And, and so, so back up a second. When you see that video clip, what are you looking for in upcoming movies? Thanos. Yeah, you're looking for Thanos. You're looking for the fulfillment of that video clip, right? You know something big is coming, okay? And, and this actually works on two levels. There's a little bit of sim- symbolism here because what has Thanos done? He's, why is he saying, fine, I'll do it myself? Because he tried before. And how did he try? By sending others. By sending others. Thanos has sent others to do the job and now he's going to say, fine, I'll do it myself. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, and so we have totally different themes, obviously, because Thanos is... Wow. I thought thought that was pretty good, but I guess, uh, guess not. Anywho, we'll move on. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Before I have total anarchy in here. John chapter 2. We're going to read John chapter 2 and then we're going to look at it in pairs for just a minute here, okay? So on the third day, if you guys remember, we have the prologue first of all. Prologue is 1, 1 through 18. It's this little encapsulation of the whole gospel. And then we have the testimony of John the Baptist in 19. And then we see Jesus starting to call his disciples And now we get to really the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the beginning of Jesus actually doing stuff, okay? So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changer sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So we're going to stop there. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to cut you down right here, okay? If you are on the right side, I want you to look at the first story, the wedding, okay? 2, 1 through 13. If you're on the left side, I want you to look at the second story, 13 through 23, 22, and just answer these questions. What is the problem or what are the problems in our story? What is the solution or what are the solutions and what is the result? Okay? So just with the person next to you, look down that story, jot down a few ideas. There's pens somewhere. I'll find them. Over there. Okay. All right. Is that long enough? Okay. So here we go. Let's talk, um, let's talk about these, all right? So those who did the wedding, problems. What, what, what types of problems do we see here? No wine, all right? Now, for how many of you is that a huge problem in your household? Always. Not so much, always, right? Um, how many of you have been to a wedding before? Been to a wedding? Okay, so just put yourself in this place, okay? Let's say that you're at this wedding. It's fancy, schmancy. It's all really nice. Music, ceremony, it's all happened. You're sitting at your table. You've got your little place card there. And, and the servers are coming around, and they serve food, and, and then they get to your table, and they say, ah, well... We ran out of food. This is kind of embarrassing. Um, sorry, guys. You just you, you don't get anything to eat tonight. That'd be kind of an awkward wedding to be So I'm trying to put it on your on, on a level that would be similar. Okay. It would be highly embarrassing. And who would it be embarrassing for? The, the people, no us. People getting married, right? The people who are paying for the wedding. They didn't. Put enough money out there to pay for their guests to have dinner? That would be very embarrassing. Okay, so that's a really big problem at a wedding. Now, did anybody else pick up other problems here? Alright, we'll stick with that one. How about over here at the temple? What's up? Say again? Something about community stones? 
people are selling stuff in the temple. Okay. Yeah. So they're just there's stuff in the temple that shouldn't be there. There's animals, there's money changers, right? There's a whole background to this. And it's the idea that when you came to the temple, what did you have to do? Pray. You're there to sacrifice and pray. Pray and sacrifice. And, and what you need if you're going to sacrifice something? An animal to sacrifice, right? And a lot of Jews who are coming to sacrifice, or non-Jews, they're traveling long distances, okay? And they're traveling long distances, which means they're probably bringing money from different regions. And so you need two things. You need money changers, someone who can change out your euros for dollars or your shekels for whatever, so that you can pay the right money to get the animal. And then you need the animal so that you can sacrifice. So it's logical. So is the problem just that there's animals and that there's people? No, the problem is that they're in the temple. They're in the temple gates. They're in the courtyard of the temple. And what Jesus says is, you've turned my father's house into a house of trade. You've turned it into a marketplace. This is supposed to be a place of worship. And Jesus, who knows their hearts, is identifying a problem with money seems to be driving all of this as opposed to the right heart of worship. Okay, So there's problems. What, what solution do we get at the wedding? What's our solution? Jesus turns the water into wine. Okay, so water into wine. Okay, what was our solution over here? Uh, Jesus takes them out. Yeah, okay. So Jesus, he makes a whip, he gets them out, okay, drives them all out. And what's the result? At the end of our each story, you may write down what's the result of this happening, this sign. Okay, the disciples believe. Same over here. Disciples believe. Eventually, <coughs> right? Eventually, it says the disciples believe. Okay. All right. This is kind of our, our breakdown of, of our two stories. That main goal of that is to kind of wrap your head around the story a little bit. Does that help? Think about the story for a minute. So we're going to talk about these two stories together, okay? And three points. First point, problems that point to bigger problems, okay? So we have identified a problem here, haven't we? Both stories. No wine, stuff in the temple. Let's think about that first story. What in that first story might point to the fact that not having enough wine isn't really the big problem that Jesus is addressing here? Look, look down at it. Is there anything kind of goofy about that story and the way that it happens? I don't know if this is it, but the way that uh, the mother of Jesus just went up to him and just was like, hey, we ran out of wine, and he was kind of like, so what does that have to do just that response. Yeah, exactly. So guys, look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. You know, the mother of Jesus, Mary, says they have no wine, which might tell us that this is like Jesus's relative's wedding, you know, because Mary feels responsible in some way. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? 
That is a weird thing to say to your mom, okay? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So we're going to talk about how this is a problem that's pointing to actually a bigger problem. So you guys, Jesus, what he's doing here is he's taking a very real situation, a wedding that's run out of wine, and he's using it to teach on something much, much bigger. And this is a clue that that's what he's doing. So the clue, first of all, is, woman, what does this have to do with me? The way that that's written in the Greek is it's kind of like it says, woman, what is this between me and you? And when you look at this phrase, it's not a polite phrase. Like when I was studying this passage, I wrote down in my notes, is Jesus being playful with his mom? Like, hey, you know, mom, what does that have to do with me? And as we look at that phrase, what we see is that the only other people who use that phrase or beings that use that phrase are demons. And they use it when they're talking to Jesus. And it's their way of saying, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? And it's their way of saying, what authority are you trying to impose on our realm when they talk between Jesus and demons? So here Jesus is asked by his mother to provide wine for a wedding. And he says to her, in a sense, stop trying to impose your authority in a realm that you don't have authority. Okay? So what's happening? Well, the clue is in the next sentence. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, if we look throughout all of John, let me read you some quotes from John. John 7.30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury, and as he taught in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now before the Passover, John 13, 1, uh, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who have come, uh, you have given to him. What is the hour that Jesus is talking about? In all of those, yeah. Yeah, so my hour has not yet come is talking about this moment when Jesus is going to die. And what's important is that there were expectations about wine and weddings when it came to the Messiah, okay? Let me read something from Isaiah to you. In Isaiah, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of, this is talking about the messianic age when the Messiah comes and brings this new age on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined. There's another quote in the prophets where it talks about how wine will be dripping down from the mountains because of the messianic ages here. And so Jesus is saying the messianic age, the time when I bring about my new kingdom, is not here yet. So why are you asking me to produce wine? Do you get the connection there? Okay. Now, there's something important happening here that I want to just draw attention to really quick. If there was anybody who had kind of 
have a hard time believing in Jesus as their savior, it might be his mom because she changed his diapers and she raised him from a little baby up to a man. It's oftentimes hardest to put you know, full confidence and trust in someone when you are all that much more close to them. And so Jesus is doing something here that, that actually may have hurt Mary, that hurt her feelings. But it's for her good that he puts this distance between himself and her because even though she's his mother, she's going to have to believe in him as the son of God and her savior. Okay? So he, he has this little saying of, it's not my time yet. But, back to the wedding. The problem is no wine, and we keep reading here, and, and we see that there's actually a bigger problem here than just not having wine. And that is that um, Jesus, we see it in Jesus' action here. So Jesus has them fill up six stone water jars, and they're used for Jewish purification. It's used for a way of getting right before God, Okay? regular purification, washing in certain ways. It was a tradition of how you did things. And so Jesus takes empty jars, fills them with water, and turns the water into wine, okay? And this is a clue to the meaning of our story, which is that the water is supposed to represent the old Jewish order, the old Jewish laws that were supposed to be your religious way of getting right with God, and Jesus is going to turn it into something way better, Okay, from water into wine, the Messiah is going to bring about something that replaces the old Jewish way of doing things and make it way better. Okay? Let's go to the second story. In the second story, we get to the cleansing of the temple. We have a problem that points to a bigger problem. We have animals in the, in the temple, right? Problem. They're not loving God, so they're loving money. But here's the bigger problem. Even if they got rid of all the animals and all the sacrifices, or sorry, if they got rid of all the animals in the temple and continued to sacrifice animals, that's still not going to be a solution to their sins. Okay, we see that all throughout scripture, that, that the temple was temporary, that it wasn't supposed to be this permanent solution for how you became right with God. And so we get a solution. Jesus kicks all the animals out of the temple, but then we get a bigger solution, okay? So in both of these, we have solutions that point to bigger solutions. Look at verse 17. 217, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what does it mean to be consumed by, what do you think that means, zeal for your house will consume me? Any thoughts on that? What's your kind of picture when that happens? Yeah. really zealous, right? Like, it's the only thing you can think about, right? And you kind of, like, you think of him kind of, like, losing his mind a little bit. Like, he's so zealous for it, and maybe that's a little bit what's happening. He's so angry at what he sees, he makes a whip of all things, which if you think, man, Jesus really had a rage issue. I mean, have you ever tried to get cows and pigeons and sheep to move by yelling at them? No, you need a whip. You need to get them out, okay? Um, so I think it was functional as well as other things. Um, but consume, this word consume, it also has another meaning. What do, you, what do you mean when you consume something? You devour it, you eat it, you, you consume it till it's gone. 
it says here that Jesus' zeal for your house will consume him. So that, that phrase in the first story, that my hour has not yet come, what did that point us to? It pointed us to Jesus' death. That's the hour. Here, zeal for your house will consume me. A zeal for God's house will consume Jesus. It will devour him. It will lead to him being consumed, devoured, to being broken on a cross, and maybe even pointing all the way to us taking his body and taking his blood and consuming him week in and week out. Zeal for your house will consume me. Okay? So both of these uh, little solutions point to bigger solutions, and both of the bigger solutions are found in Jesus' death. Okay? So the result, the finally the result here, is belief. That his disciples believed him. And should we be surprised that John tells us this? No, because that's the whole point of his gospel, right? The whole point of the gospel is that we would see Jesus and see and believe in him. Read his gospel and believe in him. And so John's showing us, here's the first sign, people believed in him. Here's the second sign, people believed in him. Well, I want to talk about how we apply something like this, okay? So let's think about ourselves. Here Jesus is performing signs so that those who see the signs or read about the signs might believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and have life. And today's two signs both point to the truth that Jesus is better than old ways of maintaining a good relationship with God. So you have the old way of purification, of washing in the jars. You have the old way of the temple and sacrificing animals. In both cases, Jesus points towards his death. My hour has not yet come. Zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, he even says it more explicitly there that tear down this temple and I'll raise it back up again. And it's talking about his body. Okay. Jesus points to how his death um, is better um, and a far better solution to the problem of our sin and keeping us in a right relationship with God. So here's our question for today. Where do you go and what do you do when confronted with your sin? And how is Jesus' death a better solution for you? So if you were a good Jew and, and there's sin, one of the things you would do is you would go and you would wash, you would purify. Or you would go and you'd take an animal and you would sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, my death is going to be way better, get you way more grace and, and a right relationship with God. And we can also be kind of religious in what we do to feel better before God when we are sinning, and Jesus' death is going to do that way better than we do it. So here's some prime the pump things. I'm going to have you in just a minute. I'm going to have you think about that question and, and think about how you would answer it. But here's some possible uh, ways that we do that. So you sin. That's the problem. One of the solutions that we have to sin is we go to despair. And we say, we just try to feel really, really, really bad about our sin. Okay? And we might even think, if I feel really badly about my sin, and we kind of have this, like, maybe a time period, whether it's an hour or a few hours or a day or a few days, then if I just feel really bad then after I feel really bad for a while, I feel like I've kind of done something to solve that problem of my sin, and I can be right with God again. Can you just nod if that makes sense? Does that make sense? No? No one's nodding. A few people are nodding. Okay? Any of you, maybe you deal with sin in that way? 
you feel really guilty about it, about it and you, you just decide, I'm just going to beat myself up over it for a little while. And if I really beat myself up really good, then I think that God will be satisfied. Well, Jesus' death offers a way better solution than that. Because what you're doing there is you're saying, if I could just pay for my own sin, if I could just pay the price for my sin a little bit, then, I, then I'll feel better. But at the end of the day, God doesn't really need you to pay for your sin. He needs Jesus to pay for your sin. Because you can't pay for your sin, and Jesus has paid for your sin. And so you need to believe in Jesus. You need to come back to the cross and say, he has paid for my sin. There's no amount of feeling bad for myself that is going to solve this problem of sin. Only knowing who I am as somebody who's forgiven by Jesus, believing in Jesus, will help me to relate and get in the right relationship with God. So that's second example. You sin, which is another, another possibility. You run. How many of you are runners when it comes to sin? You know you've done something wrong. You feel the brokenness in the relationship between you and God. And so you're just going to book it. And by book it, I mean you're going to, every time you, you maybe have a convicting thought, you're just like, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm not going to, I'm just, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to read my Bible because I know if I read my Bible, I might come across something there that convicts me even more. I'm not going to pray because that's just awkward. How can I talk to God when I know I've just sinned against him? I'm going to come to church with like my, my walls up, my blinders up. I'm going to come ready to just deflect any sort of conviction that might come my way. I am going to run fast and far from any conviction over my sin so that I don't have to deal with it. And eventually, you just get comfortable with that sin. And you kind of forget about it. That, that one's in the past. It's been long enough. Let's go on our way. Jesus' death provides a way better solution to dealing with sin. Because running doesn't remove sin, it only removes our remembrance of our sin. Right? Jesus paid for your sin, so going to him and believing in his sacrifice helps you to receive the forgiveness and keeps you close with God. You don't have to run from God to forget your sin. You can actually come to God in the midst of your sin because Jesus died for it. One more example, self-pity. Some of us sin and we immediately go into the realm of feeling sorry for ourselves, And we say, we make excuses. Well, you know, it wasn't so hard for Jesus. He was God. If he only knew what it was really like to be a human, which he does. We make excuses. We, we, no one really understands me. It's not really my fault. I didn't have a choice in the matter. If they would have done this differently, then I wouldn't have responded that way. Okay, and we feel sorry for ourselves, and we make excuses, we blame others. Is that ultimately going to get us right with God? No, Jesus' death is a way better solution. Instead of feeling sorry for the sin you've sinned, for feeling sorry for yourself, feel sorry for the sin that you've sinned against Jesus. And then know that he died so that you might have grace and mercy to be forgiven of that sin, that you don't have to beat yourself up and punish yourself. In fact, you can go to him and be forgiven, okay? So each of these um, can kind of become religious activities for us. Religious in the sense that every time I mess up and something feels wrong with me and God, here's where I go. I go to this place. And Jesus is saying, 
My death is a way better place to go to receive forgiveness. Come to my death and believe what I've done for you. So that's what I want you guys to think about as we finish up today. I want you to think, where do I, where's my religious pattern? Where do I go when I sin? Where do I run to? Where do I go to try to find feeling better feelings about myself and, and, and getting past sin? And how can I recognize that and start going to Jesus and start saying, Jesus, I need to run to you and not away from you. I need to come to you and not realize you've been punished in my place. I don't need to punish myself. Instead of feeling sorry for myself, acknowledge what I've done and, and receive the forgiveness that you offer. And believe. Believe in Jesus and what he's done for you. Let's pray and we'll be done. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Jesus, we thank you that you came to bring about a new age, the messianic age. And it's an age when we can come to you in your death and in your resurrection and receive the grace that you offer us. Help us to see the many ways, Lord, that we have created our own religious systems, our own ways of dealing with sin that are unhealthy, that don't ultimately lead to right relationship with you. And help us to come to you and, and, and be bonded to you through the gospel and through your death in our place and the forgiveness that you offer there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.